The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Doing well, Father. Good, Doing Good well. to see you there. Father, I was uh, told, first of all, to uh, introduce you uh, not only as the pastor of Immaculate Conception here in Norwood, but also um, Our Lady of Boynton Beach in Florida. And Our Lady Therese. of Boynton Beach? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new not one. Not that, that Our Lady of Peace in Boynton Beach, Florida. <laughs> Our Lady of this Peace. Is why I don't Our Lady of Boynton. Peace. Like Our Lady of Peace in Boynton Beach, and also uh, St. Therese in Parma. Oh, uh, yes. Correct. Okay. Thanks. Yes, yes. Well, I'm glad they didn't change the name of the chapel in my absence, sir. <laughs> Yes. Um, so Our Lady of Peace is a very uh, old, traditional Catholic chapel going back many years, back to the late 60s, in fact. Yeah. A group that began uh, actually rea reacting to the subversion of the country back in the 1960s, and then uh, kind of coalesced around the idea of the subversion of education, especially Catholic education, already in the 1960s. So it's, uh, it's a very uh, old... Uh, you know, traditional Catholic chapel going back to the very earliest days of the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's quite a history. Mm -hmm. And of course, St. Teresa is also, St. Teresa in, in Parma, the Cleveland area of Ohio. Uh, beautiful little church there as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have some listeners who will find their way back to the traditional Mass at Our Lady of Peace at uh, St. Teresa's or one of the other traditional chapels of the Society of St. Pius V, the congregation. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Father, we have uh, multiple topics tonight, as usual, but uh, <clears throat> the first one, rather interesting, uh, it's been in the, the news a bit lately. Uh, apparently, there's there's been uh, this charge against uh, Vigano, who we have referenced multiple times on the program, and uh, apparently he um, has been charged with having a, a double, a sort of double, someone who... Uh, has been ghostwriting some of his his uh, articles and some of his publications, perhaps. And uh, apparently, there's even some sort of academic scholarly study which uh, which indicated certain differences in his writings over a period of time, indicating uh, apparently some some sort of uh, double for Vigano. So, Father, have you have you looked into any of this at all? Do you have any kind of comments to offer on this charge against Vigano? Well, I, I read the article that came out from uh, Roberto de Mattei, mm -hmm. de Mattei, I guess, uh, actually, um, the historian uh, in Rome. And um, he, he tried to make a case in uh, the Correspondenza Romana, I think it mm -hmm. was, if yes. I'm not mistaken, yes. that um, Archbishop Carlo Maria uh, Viganò's tone has changed so much over the last couple of years, that uh, analysis of uh, the phraseology of his statements, uh, the fact that his statements have become more and more frequent and uh, stronger and stronger against the Novus Ordo and and Francis and uh, all the everything modernist, right? All against against modernism. That uh, Demetay has come to the conclusion uh, that there must be some doppelganger or uh, some sort of doppio. Uh, some some double out there writing these articles now for Vigano, and supposedly uh, uh, Demetay even warned him that you know he uh, in advance that it sounds like you've got a, a double out there writing these things for you because this doesn't sound like you anymore. <clears throat> well, well, uh, actually, uh, Archbishop Vigano responded to Demetay just within the last twenty four hours now, and. Uh, Said, well, you know, you know, from the sound of things, I'm beginning to think that you have a double. <laughs> <laughs> the very fact that you would say that, because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. 
And um, in fact, th someone has weighed in here recently, uh, uh, Stephen uh, Stephen O'Reilly has, has weighed in on this subject on uh, June 22nd. So, I mean, this is very recent. He's, he's uh, come out and said this, and I thought it was rather interesting. He gives you a little synopsis of what happened here. He says, yesterday, Robert, uh, Dr. Roberto de Mattei in Correspondenza, Correspondenza Romana authored an article entitled The Vigano Case, The Archbishop and His Double. The article advanced the theory that Archbishop Vigano may not have authored some of the recent texts published under his name. That is, Dr. Mattei, uh, de Mattei suggests the possibility that perhaps some of these articles may have been ghost-written by one or more others, and Vigano's name was only affixed to the documents by Vigano. The reader can see the original article above for Dr. de Mattei's case, De Mattei on the end can, in the end concludes his article saying, and this is where he gets to the point, quote, the question we pose is therefore this, analysis of the language and content of the documents produced by Archbishop Vigano during the years 2020 to 2021 reveals an author different from that of the years 2018 to 2019. But if Archbishop Vigano's is not, if Archbishop Vigano is not the author of his writings, who now is filling in his words and perhaps even his thoughts. We would never have opened the case if so many good traditionalists were not presenting as a quasi-magisterium the statements not of Archbishop Vigano, but of his double. <coughs> a clarification is necessary for the good of the Church and of souls who have in Archbishop Vigano a point of reference, but also for the sake of the prelate who has served the Church so well and could continue to serve it. And then he has a PS, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano has already been informed in private by several persons of the existence of this problem for more than a year now. So uh, I guess uh, he's uh, somewhat indicating that Archbishop Vigano has not responded to that. And maybe that just, uh, again, aggravates his suspicions further. And uh, to return to the article by Stephen O'Reilly, he says, Now I have a great respect for Dr. de Mattei, and I even reviewed his book on filial resistance to the Pope. However, I was greatly disappointed that Dr. de Mattei aired his Vigano theory in public when it is based on such questionable evidence, questionable as italicized there, evidently for evidence, uh, for uh, emphasis, if de Mattei or others have disagreements with what Archbishop Vigano says in his letters and articles, that is perfectly fine. But then state the basis of your disagreement and then provide your counter-arguments, etc. Instead, Archbishop Vigano's authorships and, and credibility have been unnecessarily called into question on flimsy ground. Now quickly comes the word that Archbishop Vigano denies Dr. de Mattei's accusation. Gloria TV reports on Vigano's response. And uh, what they give us here is, there is no ghost writer, Vigano insists. By the grace of God, I am still in full possession of my faculties. I am not manipulated by anyone, and I'm absolutely determined to continue my apostolic mission for the salvation of souls. And then uh, Gloria TV continues. Vigano confirms that, quote, all my writings, statements, and interviews are the result of a maturation of convictions of which I proudly claim full authorship, calling de Mattei's allegations totally unfounded, bold, and fanciful, quote, unquote. So, um, in fact, uh, I'm not going to read the whole article. It's, it's interesting enough to read, but uh, actually, Archbishop Vigano says he's, well, if I interpret, disappointed in de Mattei, de Mattei, and he actually uh, questions whether what uh, de Mattei wrote is really written by him or if it's somebody else's thought. So he kind of turns the table on him, tongue-in-cheek, of course. But, uh, you know, the problem they have, well, uh, what does uh, Stephen O'Reilly have to say? I mean, O'Reilly's name is fairly well-known. Uh, traditional Catholic circles, or has been for years. 
He asked the question, so what to make of this? I don't know for sure. I have no inside information. Looking in from the outside, Demetei's article ultimately reflects a divide within the, quote, resistance in Rome. That is, some in the, quote, resistance, perhaps the likes of Cardinal Burke and Bishop Schneider among them, and with whom Dr. Matei is very likely in contact, are simply uncomfortable with Archbishop Vigano's more visible and vocal approach and the content of his message. Theories of authorship aside, that is fundamentally what this is all about, he says. That the disagreement over content and tone of Vigano's message had to descend into questions of authorship is unfortunate. Again, if you have a disagreement over contact, argue that point. So he clearly finds pretty serious fault with Dimitri and others who are behind him uh, in pushing this narrative of uh, a ghostwriter. I mean, Archbishop Vigano has become more and more vocal, but more and more, um, uh, I'd say, militant in uh, his exposure and uh, condemnation of modernism. He's facing it more and more. He's seeing it more and more clearly. And uh, he's, he's exposing it, as I say, and condemning it more and more clearly. Maybe they're afraid of where he's leading. Maybe uh, there are people who are actually seeing Archbishop Vigano, as he says, maturing in his assessment of the Novus Ordo. And perhaps they think that he's ultimately going to lead to a break with the Novus Ordo. Unfortunately, there are people like uh, Cardinal Burke and uh, uh, Bishop Schneider and others who seem to think that rejecting the new order entirely is breaking with the church, is breaking with the Catholic Church, which is absurd because the new order itself is a break with the Catholic Church. It is modernism. St. Pius X made it very clear. It is not just another flavor of Catholicism. It is even not just another flavor of error. He called it the synthesis of all heresies, as St. Pius X called it. So to break with modernism and to break with the religion of modernism, which is the Novus Ordo, cannot possibly be breaking with the Catholic Church. Quite the contrary, to adhere to modernism, to follow and practice the Novus Ordo, to apologize for it, to try to justify it, to try to somehow disguise it as Catholicism, that is breaking with the Catholic Church. This is the great uh, problem we're dealing with these days. That there are so many people out there who realize that what they're faced with is modernism in Vatican II, and, well, actually before Vatican II, leading up to Vatican II, flowering at Vatican II, and then producing this, this death flower, you know, <laughs> um, uh, and this, this false religion of the Novus Ordo with its uh, ecumenical liturgy, like they call uh, the Lord's Supper or Mass in parentheses, <clears throat> that this, to, to do that is breaking with the Catholic Church. Um, and breaking with that, modernism and the Novus Ordo is not breaking with the Catholic Church. One has to break with that modernism and Novus Ordo in order to remain Catholic, in order to remain with the Catholic Church. Maybe they see that Archbishop Vigano is seeing more and more clearly what he's dealing with in modernism and the Novus Ordo, and um, that the logical consequence of, of what he's seeing here will ultimately lead to his recognition of the fact that we have to reject this entirely. Modernism and the Novus Ordo that expresses it. So anyway, I pray that he gets there, and I pray that uh, that they all do finally wake up and realize that, uh, and get over this. This uh, well, it's 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 some kind of a, an illusion or delusion that practicing the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety by rejecting modernism and rejecting the Novus Ordo is breaking with the church when exactly the opposite is the truth. That's what, what is necessary to remain with the Catholic Church right now. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think there's any kind of uh, parallel between what's happening here and uh, what Francis has said with, with uh, traditionalist-minded Catholics who they have some kind of mental disorder and just trying to undermine their credibility? Do you think that something similar is Well, of course, this is exactly Francis' mindset. Francis is a modernist. He is not a Catholic. Francis does not believe the Catholic faith. Perhaps he never did. You, you read his own accounts, even from the early days when he was a boy. 
what he thought of the Mass at that time and so on. You don't see a scintilla of, of the Catholic faith in this, in this person at any point in his life. <clears throat> so, um, you know, here he's... Uh, well, he, look, right now, the, the Novus Ordo bishops here in America are, are debating whether or not to continue giving Joe Biden and other flagrant abortionists uh, their communion wafer, right? Now, you know, it's just astounding that they would be debating that. I guess it's it's astounding for two reasons. Because they've been doing it for so long. And their, their Saint John Paul II, who is so conservative, of course, in their mind, uh, I mean, he publicly gave communion, or gave the communion wafer to these notorious abortionists in this public liturgies that he celebrated here in the United States of America. Even Protestants as well, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, why would they even at this point consider it to be controversial? Why didn't they just just accept it and say, it's not even a point worthy of discussion anymore. Of course we're giving communion to abortionists and atheists and Protestants and anybody else who comes along. Um, uh, why would why would they have raised an issue when Bill Clinton received the wafer when he was visiting a church in Africa and uh, excoriate the priest who gave it to him? And then the priest said, but, but it's what the bishops told us to do. And then silence, right? No more. So it is astounding that they're even debating the question. So it, it really matters to anybody anymore, at least among them, at least among their, the Novus Ordo bishops. But... Uh, but it is also astounding in the sense that, uh, you know, if they were Catholic bishops, why, how, why would there be any question of giving communion to notorious abortionists? I mentioned recently in a sermon, St. John Chrysostom, who really, um, in, his, in his writing on the priesthood, especially directed to his priests there uh, in Constantinople, dared to give uh, Holy Communion to those who were publicly unworthy. And he, he blasted his clergy, his own clergy, for their weakness. And he told them, if you are afraid to deny Holy Communion to someone who comes to you who's notoriously unworthy, uh, call me. Call me. I will come personally, and I will personally refuse them Holy Communion. He said, leave it up to me to do that. I mean, he was so determined about that this must not be done. So what is it? This is what a real Catholic bishop says. You know, not with these novicero bishops say and do. Um, and what it does, it just, it just demonstrates they really don't believe that it is the actual real presence of the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. They really don't believe that. If they really believe that, they'd have to see it. It is a, it is a sacrilege to do this. And it would be a sacrilege not only for a Joe Biden to receive it, it would be a sacrilege for them to give it to him. And even worse sacrilege for them to offer him the Holy Eucharist, the, the body and the sacred body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what does St. Paul say in First Corinthians <laughs> that those who receive the this this heavenly bread, this bread of angels, this which Francis calls the bread of sinners, yeah. right? <clears throat> Just the opposite. First uh, Corinthians, St. Paul says that one who receives an unworthy is guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And uh, so if, if you had a Catholic bishop among them, he would say to a Joe Biden or, a, or, a, or a, uh, any of these so-called Catholics, the modern Catholics who come to him, I can't do this for your own sake. I can't do this to you. I can't inflict on you a sacrilege that is going to condemn you to hell or put you in a deeper place in hell, add to your sufferings in hell where you're already going anyway because... Well, in Joe Biden's case, he's the abortionist-in-chief who wants to be the abortionist-in-chief for the whole world right now, funding abortions everywhere. Um, so how could, they, how could they, in the name of charity, do it to him if they realize what, what they're dealing with? But they don't, because they don't believe. They don't believe it's the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. If they did, they couldn't do it. Their actions speak a thousand times louder than words. Whatever they may say to the contrary, they don't believe that. They don't believe in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. They don't believe in the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And that's why it's, it's, a, it's a question that they have to debate whether or not it has pure symbolic value as far as they're concerned.
So this is what we're dealing with here. And um, anyway, Tom, I don't know if that directly answers your question, but uh, yeah, yeah. it sort of uh, touches on it, I think. Sure, yeah, Father, and that actually uh, that leads into... And by the way, the point that I was getting at anyway was that even though the, the supposedly about two-thirds to three-quarters of the Novus Ordo bishops here want to issue a statement about worthiness to receive the Eucharist, okay? But the word on the street is that Francis is not backing them up. And when they send whatever document they produce to the Vatican, it's going to be thrown in the trash. It's going to be torn up and discarded because Francis is not going to support them. Yeah. Even if they do dare grow a, a, a single vertebra, <laughs> you know, and to uh, indicate that they should not give their communion wafer to an abortionist, a notorious abortionist, that Francis is not going to support them in that. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're actually asking mm -hmm. about with regard to Francis, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, Father, that, that perfectly leads into uh, this email, uh, recent email from a viewer um, that I found very, very heartfelt. I wanted to uh, read this on the air. He said that I currently attend a Novus Ordo church, and though I find your position that the current Catholic that the current Catholic Church has been led astray from its original intent, extremely compelling. So much so that I watch your programs and am considering becoming a traditional Catholic. But here's what I can't understand. How could God let the Church get so far away from true Catholic principles? Millions of Novus Ordo Catholics believe they are following the Catholic Church as intended by Christ. Uh, he says, my parents lived and died believing they were devout Catholics and following the true Catholic Church, so why would God let so many people be led astray when they are trying trying to and believe they are doing the right thing? What you have to say resonates with me, but I just cannot wrap my head around how or why this could happen. Well, unfortunately, we have um, reality. And that's what he, this gentleman is talking about when it comes to reality, facing the reality of the situation, mm -hmm. but being un unable to account for it. Like, okay, this seems to be happening. Why would God allow it? Those are two separate questions. And the fact that he cannot get his, wrap his head around why God would allow it doesn't change the fact that it's happening. So it's actually a matter now of trying to uh, understand why it's happening, not whether it's happening, but why it is happening. Why is part of God's plan? And of course, we have to go back to divine revelation itself, right? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. St. Paul talks about the coming of the Antichrist. Why would God allow an Antichrist to come? Why would he allow the events of St. Matthew 24 and uh, 25 to happen? Why would there be a hell? Right? I know his question is, how, why would, would well-meaning people, like his own parents, <clears throat> why would they be mistaken? Well, people are mistaken. There are a lot of, you might say, well-meaning Protestants out there, too. Why would God allow a Martin Luther to uh, um, have a church so, with so many corrupt clergy and, you know, failing clergy? And actually, the Council of Trent addressed that question. So I'm not, I'm not making the Protestant case here. The, the, uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent was produced for priests because they were not well instructed in their faith. Why would God allow that? Why would God allow the Catholic people to suffer from that? Why would God allow the church to suffer from that? Why would God allow a Protestant re re revolution, actually called a Reformation in history, <clears throat> to uh, be triggered by that? I don't, I know, I, I can't go into the mind of God to explain. All I know is this, that God would not allow any evils to occur unless they would somehow um, result in a greater good, that his power, his divine power, will result in a greater good. Ultimately, that there will be more souls saved because of these things, or that those who are saved will love him all the more and be greater saints in heaven, right? Ultimately, that's, that has to be the answer, that there is a greater good that will come from these things, that God would tolerate these evils. But, I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, St. Paul speaks very clearly about a great falling away, a great uh, apostasia. Hey, apostasia, he talks about an apostasy from the faith. And uh, in, in, in prophesying this, he's actually prophesying 
that there must be a great growth to the faith, as I mentioned before, because at that time there weren't enough followers of Christ on earth to make a great apostasy possible, right? Now, there'd have to be a great growth uh, of the church, a great growth of the faith, uh, before there could be a great apostasy. So St. Paul was predicting the great growth of the church uh, to the point where there could be a, a great or massive falling away from the faith. Um, again, the fact that it happens, the fact that it is happening, the fact that it must happen because it has been forecast, as it were, uh, prophesied uh, by the divine word of sacred scripture, uh, helps us to understand that, yes, it can happen, it must happen, and this might well be it. <laughs> but um, to ask why it happens, then we need um, you know, the fathers of the church and the, the church itself to understand why God permits evil in the first place. Now, you know, when it comes to uh, people being mistaken and led astray, well, heaven knows this is what modernists do today. They lead people astray. And uh, they try to convince people to follow them in the name of Catholicism. And uh, this is what the Masons forecast in the early 1800s, right, with the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita. They said, we will gain a pope according to our needs, and the church will follow him into revolution. That we'll have the little finger of the, of the successor of Peter in the plot, and that will require only his, his little finger to set on fire the four corners of the world with revolution. The church will follow him. Um, you know, he'll be wearing tiara and cope. Or he might even say carrying cross, in this case, the witch's staying of Francis. Um, and everyone will follow him thinking they're, they're, they're in procession of the church. So this is what exactly what they had in mind. But we have to uh, realize that this is not sitting in judgment of those who are deceived. God is their judge. If they, if they really were deceived into believing that this is what was the Catholic thing to do, and they did it for that reason, uh, God, God himself was the one who has to judge that. I can't. So we have, to, we have to avoid judging the souls who were led astray by the Novus Ordo. Tom, you, you know very well. <clears throat> with, with each passing... Uh, year with each passing week, actually with each passing day, we have people who who escape from the Novus Ordo and come back to practice Catholic tradition. And we hear the same thing from them all along. I was deceived. You know, I thought I was doing the right thing. But now, by the grace of God, I realize that I wasn't. But at the time, I thought it was the right thing to do. And it was hard for me because I didn't like it. But I simply went along with it because I thought, my Catholic faith required this of me. So they were going through a kind of martyrdom, even, in that situation, right? So, I mean, your heart goes out of these people. You're grateful to God for giving them the grace to see it. You're grateful for them to them for cooperating with the grace, to be willing to see it. But for quite a while, they didn't. And um, you, perhaps, you were raised traditional Catholic. Uh, but I remember what it was to be in the modern seminaries and trying to find my way through. You know? As there are still many, many people out there today trying to find their way. And uh, we can see that uh, God, led them, God led them through. And we have to uh, trust that God, in his mercy, will grant them a merciful judgment, too. They tried to do the right thing according to what they understood at the time. Amen. Okay. Uh, well, the next, Father, we have a, a couple of practical questions uh, for you. <clears throat> One of our viewers asked uh, what the best ways are to help understand Scripture during uh, personal Bible study. This viewer says that he currently uses the Catena Aria, a Greek interlinear dictionary and a references guide, but are there any other resources or practices that I should consider? <clears throat> well, I'm glad he asked that question, actually. Uh, you know, the church has told us that we cannot interpret the scriptures for ourselves individually, right? Personal interpretation, private interpretation is dangerous, right? 
We see this with Protestantism. We see it with Martin Luther. We see it with Zwingli. We see it with Calvin. We see it with all of those who've taken the uh, word of God and twisted it to serve their own purposes. We see even in St. Peter's uh, epistles where he warns, he says, you know, there are those who who take the words of St. Paul's letters, epistles, twist them uh, even to their own damnation. They, they, They adulterate them. So he warns, he says there are obscure things, things that are hard to understand. He said no interpretation of scripture is to be done by private interpretation. This is St. Peter himself telling us this in the words of sacred scripture. So this gentleman, uh, if it is, maybe it's a lady, I, this writer um, is right to be cautious and the right to ask the question, how can we interpret sacred scripture according to the mind of the church? Well, the church says that the interpretation of the fathers, the, the, the moral um, con- conversions or unanimity of the fathers of the church, the moral consensus of the fathers of the church would be infallible in its interpretation of sacred scripture. Um, the church also teaches us, of course, uh, that there are approved commentators. The Catena Aurea is a very good source, uh, drawing upon the fathers of the church there in interpreting the uh, the sacred scriptures. So I'm very glad that he has the Catena Aurea. He has the, um, that's the golden chain. Catena means the chain, right? And it's available in, in Latin. It's available in English, too. It's probably available in both, uh, in some volumes. That's an excellent volume to have for guidance in sacred scripture. The church that tells us we have to be careful about interpreting scripture for ourselves also encourages us to read scripture. So the church, in in warning us away from interpreting it for ourselves, is telling us that it's important for us to read the words of sacred scripture, however. So it is the mind of the church that we have some good guides. Um, one of the one of the good guys we've mentioned here um, in the past is that of uh, Cornelius Alapide. Cornelius Alapide is an excellent commentator on sacred scripture, and he bases himself uh, squarely on the writings of the fathers. And uh, when he appeals to sacred theology, it's always what is approved by the church. So uh, I understand that that uh, much of uh, Cornelius's, uh, Cornelius Alapide's uh, works, commentaries are available in translation uh, on the internet, although I warn people about the internet because it is a pit <clears throat> full of all kinds of things, but there are some good things in there, and if you can control it, not be controlled by it, you can find some excellent things there. The writings of Cornelius Alapide, I don't know if the entirety of it is translated or translated well, um, but where it is, it is a very good and secure guide to understand the words of sacred scripture. There, there are others also, but uh, between the Catena Aurea and uh, Cornelius Alapide, the writings of St. Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, uh, and others, uh, St. Jerome, excellent commentators on sacred scripture. Yeah. And they're all available, too. Uh, not only in the original Latin, some in Greek, but uh, he says he has a Greek interlinear. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps he has some background in biblical Greek, too, which is good, or the Septuagint. Um but but the English translations often are available and they're very good. Okay, so. perfect. Um, well, then another practical question. He asks, how should I prioritize daily devotions? He says, there are so many things that I want to do. Scripture study, reading the works of saints, the rosary, the divine office, and countless other devotions. So, Father, how does one prioritize which devotion to practice? Well, uh, the devotions are all meant to increase our, of course, knowledge of the faith and our, our hope and our love for God. Ultimately, our love for God is the goal. And so when we have devotions, we're talking about prayer, right? And it comes down to prayer and turning the mind and the heart to God, turning our attention and our affections to God. So whatever devotion 
is most successful in doing that, aids us in growing in love for God, is the devotion we should focus on. Now, you know, the church has given us the, the devotions to enable us to grow in our faith and hope and charity, our love for God. But uh, with regard to uh, a single devotion that could be singled out, well, obviously, I mean, you have the rosary. The rosary is a combination of vocal prayer and mental prayer, meditation, right? It's reciting the formulas of prayers given to us by God. I mean, God the Father sent the angel Gabriel with the words of the Hail Mary to our Blessed Mother, right? And uh, God the Son himself taught us the words of the Pater Noster, the, the, the Our Father. The Gloria Patri, the glory be to the Father, the doxology is present in sacred scripture. So when we pray these words out loud, we're in, indulging in a vocal prayer, which is very important. But the rosary is not just repeating these prayers over and over again. It's actually setting to the music of these prayers, said audibly, verbally, uh, meditation on the mysteries of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. Notably, our Lord's life in conjunction with that of our Blessed Lady. So that meditation is a form of mental prayer. Um, that is really the devotion that the church and all of the saints urge all of us to do, at least to allow 15 minutes a day, no matter how busy any layman may be. He is encouraged to spend at least 15 minutes a day, of course, priests more so, engaged in mental prayer, uh, which is really a turning of the heart and the mind to God. Um, meditating. Uh, meditation is just one form of that. You know, when, when people talk about mental prayer, they think, well, it means meditation, right? Well, yes, but that's not the entirety of it. Um, there are levels of mental prayer, okay? Just as there are levels of abstraction, you know, and philosophy. I won't go into that because that would take forever to explain, but anyway. Um, but it has to do with uh, less and less material dependence on, on the matter, the material, uh, and getting more and more into the spiritual. Um, um, St. Teresa of Avila, for example, uh, would turn her heart and mind over to mental prayer, and she considered it to be kind of a conversation with our Lord, a face-to-face -face conversation with our Lord. She would use her imagination to see our Lord, see his face, uh, uh, see him crowned with thorns, right? Um, she, would, she would imagine this as though she was there present before him and engaging in conversation with him. And she would bring to him the things that were uh, important to her own heart, things that were of concern to her, but she would always listen and hope that you know, there would be thoughts with which he would respond in her mind through the power of the Holy Ghost working in her, in her mind. Uh, Saint uh, Catherine Labore would do essentially the same thing. If she didn't get anything in response, if it sounded as if, if it was as though our Lord did not respond to her, or give her new insights and new thoughts into the very things that she brought to him, she said she considered it as though she got what she deserved because she really didn't deserve anything. So she was perfectly at peace with it, but she would make an act of thanksgiving. But you see that in time, she did receive from God, our Lord much information, right? Much enlightenment. And uh, he did lead her spiritually through the spiritual conversations he had with her. Um, personally, I, I think that uh, a very important part of mental prayer would be, as I've said before and say again, is uh, a matter of actually uh, not struggling to drive all the other thoughts out of our minds because the more we we struggle to get other th thoughts out of our minds the more we pay attention to them the more we highlight them so what we need is one thought that will drive all the other thoughts out of our mind and what i liken this to is uh, seeing something we're hearing something really very beautiful and i think everybody's had that experience where they they see something so beautiful that captivates their mind. I mean, look, <clears throat> you see a mother, a mother when the, the newborn baby is put in her arms, right? 
I mean, you'll see the look on her face, right? Is she paying attention to anything else? Anything else in the world? Nothing, nothing. All of her attention is given to that newborn baby. Absolutely. There's only one thought in her mind, right? That newborn baby, she's looking at the little baby's face, and she's just totally captivated by that saying, right? For men, I don't know what, you know? <clears throat> uh, maybe, a, you know, a vintage car. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to say with men. But I hope with men, too. I mean, they would have that same connection there, right? Men know also what that is, to have something, see something or hear something, that is just so beautiful that they are absolutely enthralled by it, that they're oblivious to anything else. It's just captivated their entire attention. Well, that's, that basically is the idea of mental prayer, right there. But here, what we're doing, we're, we're having capture our mind or capture our attention, captivate our thoughts. God himself, the thought of God, and not of, of God merely as like an object, like I'm contemplating this book or this glass of water or this even this crucifix. I'm thinking of God as God thinking and loving, but God thinking and loving infinitely powerfully, and God thinking and loving me, God thinking of me, God being aware of me, and I turn my awareness to being aware of him, absolutely aware of him, and his awareness of me. And I want that thought to completely occupy my all of my attention. And then lead necessarily to the thought of God loving and loving me. God not only knowing me absolutely in the every, not only fiber of my being, my physical being, but knowing my soul absolutely perfectly, infinitely powerfully, he knows that. And, uh, and he loves, he loves with a great, great love. And then I want to meet him with my own love. You know? So the thought starts with me turning my attention to God. And then the awareness of his awareness, of his thoughtfulness of me, such that that is the only thought in my mind. And the awareness of his love and then finally, the, 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 you might say, the fourth awareness is of my love for him. And kind of it going full circle that way. But I think the idea of, of mental prayer ultimately comes down to the idea of having our attention so completely given to God or the things of God, divine things, um, to the mind of God in his, in his instruction, his divine intelligence and his divine will, love, um, that we kind of make very real in our own souls what we call the transcendentals, the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God, that we want to actually, as it were, draw from that uh, living fountain of waters, you know, uh, to, in a sense, experience, not in a modernist sort of way, but as creatures, by grace, the truth and the goodness and beauty of God. Um, and that that is all we think about. That's all we have in our mind, whether it be for a split second or whether it be for an hour or hours at a time, unless the saints would be wrapped in ecstasy at the very thought of that. And totally oblivious to anything less going around in the in the world, you know. Uh, it's it all comes down to that, regardless of the length of time. Uh, and so I would suggest with the church. I mean, this is not my idea. This is what the saints themselves have repeatedly said, and uh, you know, Saint Alphonsus Liguori, um, uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, Saint Teresa of Lisieux, Saint. Uh, Catherine Elaboré, I mean, all, all of St. Uh, John of the Cross, and so on, and St. Um, uh, well, anyway, you get the idea, right? The mystical writers have all talked about the necessity of this kind of prayer for living in the state of grace in this world and dying in the state of grace. Uh, and they would refer to this as kind of like the key to their spiritual lives. So that's what they recommend for us. So I'd, I'd have to say that this is where 
all of the devotion should should tend in that direction. Now there was the the Lexio Divina, which is this gentleman is talking about reading sacred scripture. Should I put that first? Well, you know, the saints are telling us that yes, read sacred scripture and then use that as the launching pad, as it were, for your meditation. Take that sacred scripture, Allah Saint Bruno. Uh, read the sacred scripture, and uh, not not a great deal of it, but just uh, you know, maybe a, a verse or two, and and stop and think. You know, don't try to reason it through. Uh, don't parse the words. Don't do a sort of uh, what they used to call a uh, diagram of the sentence. He says, but just try to understand what is in the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said these words, for example, in the gospel. Right? Try to get to the actual moral, moral sense of these things. And uh, reflect upon them. Uh, and ask our Lord to shed light, you know, shine a light on these words so you understand them in a way much more clearly uh, and emphatically than you ever could did before. Um, so there you bring together the reading of sacred scripture with the mental prayer, right? And using actually the words of sacred scripture to fuel that mental prayer. Mental prayer, uh, you might say, is, hey, you know, raising your heart to God Sometimes your heart is very heavy. You know, sometimes it's like trying to lift a boulder. Uh, so you know, it takes fuel <laughs> to get the heart off the ground. And so, if we think of like a rocket ship, you know, you you have to have fuel. And uh, so, the um, you need something to fuel your meditation. Um, we're not like uh, you know the Eastern mystics who want to meditate upon nothing. You know, simply vacate the mind. That's more satanic than anything, really. We want to fill the mind with ultimate, like, infinite being, <laughs> Almighty God, and uh, thought of Him. So uh, to do that takes fuel, and to launch anything out of the gravity of this world is going to take fuel. So sacred scripture is the best fuel to, uh, to feed that meditation. Okay. So anyway, I probably said more than this writer intended, but that's all right. That's, yeah, that's, that's great. That's, that's normal. Right? Yes, thank you. Very enlightening, very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> um, one last things you wanted to get to um, is the My Catholic Faith book, which I believe you have a copy of. Oh, there. yes, indeed. We, we yes, uh, yes, touched yes, on that yes, on a, on a re recent program about the, a mm -hmm. thoroughly revised edition in uh, 1958. Um, yeah, one of our know, writers, right? One of our contacts wrote in about that. Mm -hmm. I'm glad he did, too. Yeah. And also gave you a follow-up. Right. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So, what what is the uh, just um, to refresh everyone's mind about that? So. Yeah. So, our, our, one of our viewers came across this this thoroughly revised uh, in Washington D.C. 1958 edition. Uh, Send in a couple screenshots of it, and uh, just wanted to to get your take on that, Father, because I know you you use this book a lot. Um, we reference it a lot. So, something that was thoroughly revised in 1958, perhaps even after the the death of Pope Pius XII, should we be wary of that? Should we avoid the book? Could there be uh, modernist changes that, that were in this uh, thorough revision of the book? What should I uh, I'm be? very glad that our writer did point that out, because actually I went and investigated. Usually if someone sends a question like that, I will be, I'll be going investigating, <laughs> looking into it, because I want to be sure of it. And here in this edition that was just sent to me by a very faithful uh, watcher of what Catholics believe, for which I thank him profusely, and this has revisions. It says, with revisions, 1955. So I checked it out with uh, actually a copy of uh, the My Catholic Faith that uh, other traditional organizations have actually reprinted, okay? And uh, looked at this section here, Salvation and the Catholic Church. I thought, I want to check that out and see what that says. Because, you know, one of the hallmarks of, of the Novus Ordo in modernism is ecumenism, right? Salvation comes in any way you want it to, right? Basically, whatever floats your boat as far as faith goes, it all leads to, this, to, to the same God. This is their, this is their heresy, okay? Uh, so I, I looked up my Catholic faith, and here on page 140, it's not the same in every edition, but in this 1955 edition, 
on page 140, it's actually chapter 70. <clears throat> Salvation and the Catholic Church. And this is what it says. <clears throat> um, actually, I, I'm, I'm uh, looking a little bit farther. I'm not going to read this whole section here. You can go and you can. Um, you can read this whole section. But I wanted to single out this. Can they be saved who remain outside the Catholic Church because they do not know it is the true Church? This is very relevant, so to speak, today because of the confusion of the modernist heresy. People look at Francis and they look at the, the Vatican II and all that came out of it as the Catholic Church. And they make a very serious error in, in thinking that. Um, so this is always a very serious question, but today it's, it's, it's particularly poignant. Now, this is the answer that's given here by Bishop Morrow. They who remain outside the Catholic Church through no grave fault of their own and do not know it is the true Church can be saved by making use of the graces which God gives them. God condemns no man except for grave sin. Therefore, he will not condemn those who, through no fault of their own, are unaware of his command to belong to the true church, provided they serve him faithfully according to their conscience, have a sincere desire to do his will in all things, and therefore, implicitly, that's in uh, italics, implicitly wish to become members of his church. They are members of the church in desire. And then in small print, it says, a baptized Protestant of Protestant parents lives all his life a Protestant without ever having a doubt that he is in the wrong. Before death, he makes an act of perfect contrition for the sins he has committed. Such a man will be saved, for he dies in the state of grace. It goes on to ask, is it possible for one who has never even heard of Jesus Christ to be saved? For God wishes all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Christ died for all. In order that such a one may be saved, it is required that he observe the natural law. With the help of God, everyone having the use of reason can do that. Um... Whoever then obeys the natural law will be enlightened by God at some point in his life with the grace with which he can make an act of divine faith. If he makes good use of this grace and firmly believes whatever God has revealed, he will receive the further graces with which he can make the acts of hope, repentance, and charity that must precede before God will bestow on his soul sanctifying grace with which he can merit eternal life. Okay, so that's basically one column, a little less than one column from this uh, book by Catholic Faith, 1955 edition. Do you see any problem with that? Should I? <laughs> Should you? I, I think so, Father, yes. Yes, what do you see? Uh, just, it seems a little wishy-washy on the uh, baptism of, of desire. It seems there's not a real uh, good definition of it there. It seems very wishy-washy on that, yes. <clears throat> and I'm glad our writer pointed out, saying, you know, we have to be careful of this, because when I went and uh, went back to this and reread this, I thought, you know, the Catechism of the Council of Trent talks about a catechumen yeah. who has the intention to receive the sacrament of baptism, and um, through no fault of his own, he doesn't actually receive the sacrament. But the, the Catechism says that the Church believes that his intention, her desire for the sacrament, which in this case is, is connected with his intention to receive it, actually, a positive intention to be baptized, and his, uh, his repentance for his sins will avail him unto justification and grace, in this case, sanctifying grace, right? But that's not the case we're talking about here. The case that is presented to us here by Bishop Morrow in My Catholic Faith is not that at all. He's gone way beyond the explicit intention to be baptized and to become a Catholic, the intention to be received in the church. 
And he gets to this kind of vague, implicit desire if you intend to do what is right and you want to do God's will, even if you don't know who tr the true God is. You know? um, it seems to me that this is really um, uh, changing, changing the, the terms. You know? uh, this is not what is defined as baptism of desire in, by the Council of Trent, as far as I can see. This has been expanded wildly and uh, I think this is exactly the kind of thing that Father Feeney was reacting against. Unfortunately, his reaction was not a Catholic reaction. His reaction was to deny the existence of baptism of desire at all. And the, the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent explicitly, and the Council of Trent itself explicitly does, speak of uh, those who desire the waters of baptism those who desire to be, be baptized in the church. So to deny there is such a thing as, a, as baptism of desire is, is manifestly non-Catholic. It's un-Catholic to do that. But on the other hand, to take the idea of baptism of desire and to stretch it so that it applies to virtually everybody of goodwill is really, that doesn't seem like a very Catholic thing to be either, right? Um, so, um, I would, I would personally find fault with this, um, and would say, I do not, I do not think that this necessarily, this expresses the Catholic teaching as to what the Catholic, the baptism of desire really is. And I think it leads toward the Vatican II idea and the Karl Rahner idea of the anonymous Christian. As you know, Karl Rahner was the modernist in chief at Vatican II, right? Second, perhaps only to... Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI, right? In the, in the Novus Ordo. So, um, yeah, I, I find this to be very wanting here and somewhat misleading. Something, though, that I think is very uh, important, though, appears in... Uh, the book, The City of God by St. Augustine. Now, this is something I hadn't read before. But again, in doing some research, you come across, a, you, you know, you find a wealth of information in the church. It, it's inexhaustible. The history of the church, the writing of the fathers, and so on. And you're always learning when you're, when you are trying, you know, studying and you're exposing your mind to things uh, uh, that the church has taught over the centuries. In chapter 7, of the book, The City of God. Uh, this is actually book 13, book 13, chapter 7, okay? City of God by St. Augustine. Here's what he says, and this has to do with, as he says, the confession of Christ. And he talks about the martyrdom of unbaptized persons. He's talking about baptism of blood. Interesting, the baptism of blood. St. Augustine, here's what he says. For whatever unbaptized persons die confessing Christ, this confession is of the same efficacy for the remission of sins as if they were washed in the sacred font of baptism. For he who said, quote, unless a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, end quote, that's St. John chapter 3, verse 5, made also an exception in their favor in that other sentence where he no less absolutely said, quote, Whoever, whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven, end quote. That's St. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. And in another place, quote, Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it, End quote. St. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. And this explains the verse, quote, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, end quote. For what is more precious than a death by which a man's sins are all forgiven and his merits increased a hundredfold for those who have been baptized when they could no longer escape death and have departed this life with all their sins blotted out have not equal merit with those who did not defer death, though it was in their power to do so, but preferred to end their life by confessing Christ, rather than by denying him to secure an opportunity of baptism.
And even had they denied him under pressure of the fear of death, this too would have been forgiven them in that baptism in which was remitted even the enormous wickedness of those who had slain Christ. But how abundant in these men must have been the grace of the Holy Ghost, who breathes where he lists, seeing that they so dearly loved Christ as to be unable to deny him, even in so sore an emergency, and with so sure a hope of pardon. What he's saying here is, if they could have denied, if they would have denied Christ, they could have lived and then sought baptism. And that would have assured the forgiveness of all their sins. He's saying, but they didn't do that. They didn't deny Christ for the sake of living to be baptized, even though they were sure of the hope of pardon. They were willing to die confessing him, even though it denied them the sacrament. He's saying that they have greater merit. Interesting, right? Precious, therefore, is the death of the saints, to whom the grace of Christ has been applied with such gracious effects, that they do not hesitate to meet death themselves, if so be they might meet him. And precious it is also, because it has proved that what was originally ordained for the punishment of the sinner has been used for the production of a richer harvest of righteousness. Death, meant to be the punishment of the sinner, now is actually producing, as he says, a harvest of righteousness. So anyway, this is, I think, a very powerful statement of St. Augustine there. And um, it also highlights uh, what, I, what I consider to be kind of, kind of the error in uh, the book My Catholic Faith by Bishop Morrow here, even preceding the 1958 thorough revisions. I think it, this is what I was looking for when I asked you, did you find something amiss in this statement from My Catholic Faith? This is what I found faulty. God condemns no man except for grave sin. Now, that's not exactly true. St. Augustine also, in the City of God, talks about Adam sinning and then passing on sinful human nature to all of his offspring. And in doing so, God passed on the sentence of condemnation. This is Catholic teaching. To imply, at least imply, that God condemns no man except for grave sin and setting aside original sin. That God would not condemn anyone for, for original sin. But implying that God would not condemn anyone except for his own personal, actual grave sins, that is not true as St. Augustine himself and the Church herself is taught, that we are condemned because of original sin. Uh, not just because of our own personal, actual grave sins. You know. But original sin itself is, is, is the, the, the fault of our race that has pronounced the sentence of condemnation against us. We ratify it, we add to it by our own personal sins. That's true. But this seems to imply that God does not condemn just because of original sin, but only because of grave actual sin. And that is, that is not true. That is not the Catholic faith. That's what concerns me. But you saw it immediately, I'm sure. Father, is this same, uh, are these same errors contained in the edition that, uh, that you use that the, the edition that we had last week on the show do you have you I, that's, that's right yes i believe so okay. yeah right. yeah i verified that i went and checked it out to yeah. see if that it's the same text yes okay. uh so uh to the best of my knowledge anyway it's it it precedes the 1955 edition yeah okay. so uh anyway i'm glad this uh the gentleman brought that to my attention. I'm always grateful when somebody brings up a problem like that and doesn't uh, just uh, take an inadequate answer and let it lie at that. I need them to pursue it. So I appreciate when they do. Great. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate all of your time and everything that you do. Um, anything oh, else that you'd like to add in closing? Well, I just you know bring up the fact that we are in the closing days of the month of the Sacred Heart of our Lord. And... Uh, this is actually the theme of the retreat that I have coming up. I had the ladies' retreat last week, 
the theme of that retreat is the same as it will be for the men now coming up beginning tomorrow. And that is um, entering into prayer, not only with the Sacred Heart of our Lord, but but actually entering into the prayer of our Lord himself, entering into the prayer of the Sacred Heart and how we do that, how we have to do that uh, in order to sanctify ourselves in this world and, um, you know, grow in the state of grace, grow in the grace of God. So seeking union with the Sacred Heart of our Lord Jesus Christ is the is the key. Absolutely. And that is... That is praying with our Lord, praying through our Lord, our Lord, having the prayer of our Lord in our own hearts. You know, there's a part in the, at the end of the canon, there's a prayer where we say, you know, with him and in him and through him, we all, all glory and honor is to the, the Father, you know. And uh, basically, as a matter of realizing that prayer in our lives, the conclusion of the canon of the Mass, that, uh, that we have to grow in sanctity. So I would say, uh, by all means, when, when the retreat conferences by Father Greenwell, by myself, are posted, as they will be, no doubt, uh, in the next week, few weeks, <clears throat> the people who are listening can uh, listen to them also, in the, even though they might not have been able to get to the retreat. <clears throat> uh, but they can still listen to the conferences and find out the message of the retreat on this uh, What Catholics Believe program. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Father, thank you. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. God yeah. bless you all. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>